Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Climate Chats podcast. My name is Christian Friedrich. By the end of March 2020, the Research and Transfer Center Sustainability and Climate Change Management will be organizing a worldwide online climate conference, Climate 2020. We will invite presenters, organizers and partners of the conference onto the Climate Chats podcast for quick chats around their fields of expertise. And the first guest in this series is Martha Molfedas. Martha is the executive director and founder of Impact Human, an environmental justice outreach and education NGO based in New York City. She's also a policy researcher, a strategist, a writer and a consultant on climate security, development and resource issues. Hi, Martha. Glad to have you here. Glad to be here. So I tried to give a quick introduction of who you are and what Impact Human does, but I'm pretty sure you have something to add to that. Um, would you mind in, to introduce yourself and your work to us and the, the audience of the podcast? Sure. I've spent the last decade of my life working on a myriad of issues as a, as a freelancer, but after spending so much time working in high-level stakeholder environments as a UNFCCC observer in Lima and uh, just with other types of stakeholders, like business interests, and as well as uh, when I was in the UK with APPG groups, you know, it was very clear that there was a big disconnect between the people making all these decisions, the information that's already out there, usually geared towards a high-level stakeholder audience with data and, and whatnot, which is all invaluable, and, you know, as you can imagine, and the people who are affected by these issues. And that's what kind of propelled me to create Impact Human after having that freelance life in the UK and moving back home to Florida for a short spell before moving back uh, up here to Brooklyn, it was really clear that the people around me, although they were well-informed and would identify themselves as progressive people, they couldn't connect the dots between extreme heat days and you know sea level rise that was happening, like increased storm surges and worse hurricanes. They couldn't connect the dots between what was happening to them directly and to what we were all causing. Mm -hmm. So in part with that, that's why Impact Human uses photography interviews with people affected and short policy research that's written for broad audiences, not just towards high-level stakeholder uh, language to educate the public on the human rights and environmental injustices that are happening right now to communities, um, both in the U.S. and globally, um, when it comes to climate impacts and pollution impacts. So in short, Impact Human believes that stories have the power to change perspectives and inspire actions, that, that our stories that we share with one another can bridge that gap between understanding and action. Okay, great. So you've been doing this for a while now, and I'm wondering if there are any learnings that you could share about that. Are there do's and don'ts when, when you do that kind of work? Yeah, I mean, it's it can be tricky to find interviewees for, for these projects because a lot of people maybe don't want to talk about issues like, or for security reasons, they can't, you know, for mm -hmm. our displacement in Dar es Salaam project, which, you know, it's basically disaster risk reduction gone wrong. <laughs> Um, all those interviews had to be anonymized because the people affected were concerned that there'd be retaliation. Essentially, local government um, was painting red X's on people's homes, and they had been threatening that they would demolish people's homes for a long time. But 
they finally just went around and, and did it. They painted red X's on people's homes. And I think they were given uh, something like three or five days to leave wow. before their home rubble. Uh-huh. So in tandem with that, there was no alternative housing given the majority of those people found themselves homeless and the people residing in those floodplains are among the poorest and are, and it's like the only place they can afford to live. Like in most cases, the those least responsible will bear the highest costs when it comes to climate impact. So, but that's just such a perfect example of how getting interviews can be difficult and you have to take into account the people here you're talking with. So for that project, we had hurdles because we weren't able to show any images of anybody for their protection. So since we pride ourselves on being able to share those stories and share interviews and and share photos of people affected, um, often in the places where they live or work that are affected, I would say just like with climate solutions, how each climate solution is completely local in terms of what unique geography exists, what unique um, climate impacts you're talking about. But uh, I think you need to, when you're sharing these stories, you need to have a respect for the people that you're interviewing, just kind of shut up and let them tell their story. Um, because people do want to tell their story, but also you need to create some sort of environment of trust. So we always try to reach out to people, especially at these first projects, people who we know, because we're like trying to prove proof of mm-hmm. concept. Because we, we've only existed since uh, 2016. Um, and we don't have any substantial funding. So uh, everything we do is voluntary. And But yeah, I think just have respect for your interviewees and and try to do your homework beforehand and reach out to people in different different local networks that might exist because you might be able to find some some people who, who, you, who you know, but also people who you don't know who um, can get you started. And now that we've been rolling, it's been easier for us to get interviews for our, our more recent projects because there's examples for people to see. So it's interesting yeah, yeah. That, uh, looking looking at the different um, different stories you can tell that that there is some kind of trust between uh, between the people uh, who who connected telling that stories that that story absolutely i think trust is so important you know so i would for somebody who i have never met before i would contact them at least three or four times before we actually sit down and have the interview in person so i'd have a phone conversation I'd have uh, before that an email conversation and uh, sometime between the phone conversation and showing up an additional email, just explaining how the day will be. So nice. So, and lots of your work deals with the changes that sea level rise brings to people's lives and communities. Is there like, would you, would you say that there's some, some general differences in how sea level rise impacts different regions in the world? Or is that very context specific in each of these communities that you're working with? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's, you know, it's a global issue. And some of the stats that have just come out are really harrowing. It's like, I think at the end of last year, or the beginning of this year, 2019 and 2020 have just blurred together already. But uh, by 2050, which is only 30 years from now, mm-hmm. <laughs> many low-lying cities will be wiped off the map, either entirely or in part. Obviously, it's going to displace hundreds of millions, if not a billion people, specifically Asia, you know, Shanghai, about half of it's going to be underwater under the new projections. Um, Past projections were more conservative, but now that we're seeing climate impacts happen faster and more harsher than what was initially anticipated for this moment that we're in, now projections are being um, ramped up to take into account, like, okay, what's this, what's our actual reality going to be like? So. Uh, in some of the new projections, 
you know, the majority of Vietnam, an entire country that is in a low-lying floodplain, won't be there anymore or will be underwater. Jakarta is one that comes up a lot because they're um, actually going to relocate their capital city. Um, wow. Obviously, they're going to have mm-hmm. to deal with a lot of, um, you know, how do, how do they... You know, so, managed retreat is going to be a thing that is going to come up a lot in probably the next 10 years. And, um, in addition to what infrastructure projects can we do? You know, like, you know, New York City, um, I think it was last week, basically there's talks to basically build a huge wall off the coast of like the entire New York city mm-hmm. area, but I think specifically just Manhattan mm-hmm. and it's going to cost, you know, billions of dollars, if not hundreds of billions of dollars, other cities like New Orleans may not be able to afford something like that. Um, and cities like Miami, which we uh, did our first project on Miami, which is my birthplace. Um, so the idea that my birthplace is potentially not going to be there for any future children I may have, is is kind of bizarre but the issue with miami that's unique to other areas so you think of a floodplain as like okay like it's this packed dirt or whatever and it's just like at sea level or just below sea level and whenever the tide comes in whatever but with miami miami sits atop um porous limestone bedrock which has been great for miami's ability to to um build these you know towers in the sky these castles upon sand and it's actually the thing that's causing this issue to be more severe than it would be in another geographical location and, and elsewhere in Florida as well because the water comes up through the ground so there's something that's happening called sunny day flooding there and there's also um, the king tides which coincide with like the celestial movements of the moon and the earth and basically when it's like a big a big tide Um, And it happens twice a year when the moon is closest to the earth. But essentially what happens is there's severe flooding. But yeah, so Miami Beach is putting in water pumping system and they're elevating roads and they've actually, um, they've wrapped up some of these projects. And walking around uh, Miami Beach, you can still see where some businesses are and they're at the level of the original road, which is like below the street. So they're like at basement mm-hmm. level now and they used to be at street level. Whether or not that's going to be a Band-Aid or a long-term fix remains to be seen. You know, what what Miami does, though, will prove to be an, a, a great example because they, at least when the U.S. is concerned, it's the first major metro area that is doing anything on a substantial level to combat sea level rise. Mm-hmm. But, you know, whatever measures that Miami is doing and whatever measures that New York City metro area has done, obviously the wall thing is something that is being talked about, but it hasn't been implemented yet. It's all to help with coastal resiliency, but it's potentially not enough to deal with potential storm surges. Mm-hmm. So I think, what was it? Um, in our Sandy Project brief, we talk about what's the sea level height that New York City is planning for. And New York City is planning for, I think it's six and a half or seven feet of sea, of, of sea level rise, which is substantial but those relate to older projections by mm-hmm. the IPCC. So realistically, it would be better if they planned for 10 feet of sea level rise, because then at least they could ha- have built in some resiliency for potential storm surges that we might yeah. see in the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years. But yeah, so yeah. I guess it's just a bit of a snapshot on the global level, <laughs> as it well is. as like some of our projects. It is. And it's interesting because at the same, at the same time, you have you as a city, as a county, um, as a community, you have to be able to afford these kinds of, of actions to prevent you from being flooded or underwater constantly. Yeah. Um, 
we've kind of exceeded the time limit of our conversation already, which is a shame because I'd love to hear more about all those stories. But I'm also glad that I can point our listeners to the website and the different project websites um, that you have provided, for example, for the Dar Salaam project, for the projects that you do, did on Sandy or on Miami sea, uh, sea Level Rise. But I also, and I, I warned you beforehand that I might be asking you this, I have one final question for you, which is <laughs> if you had a pragmatic means of climate action that, that listeners can take, if you had to suggest anything that listeners could do to tackle climate change, um, what would that be? What would you suggest our listeners go and do um, after listening to this episode? I would say, you know, all the individual actions are great and everybody should consider, you know, cutting out plastic and eating less meat is probably better for you and your health and longevity um, personally. But the best thing everybody can do is pick up the phone and call your local government and tell them to stop financing fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Fossil fuel production alone accounts for 72% of all emissions. We, as a global community, according to the IMF, are spending $5.2 trillion each year on fossil fuel subsidies. That's your tax dollars at work. But instead of going towards climate resiliency, like some of the examples I talked about in our projects mm -hmm. and, and hope happening elsewhere, it's going towards essentially funding our own demise. So it's, it's funding the cause itself, not to mention the health risks to communities and the wasteland to waterways, ecosystems, and the knock-on health effects. I think Rolling Stone just did a really great long-form expose that was about how fossil fuel extraction apparently also in addition to all the other things it gives us it also gives us uh, nuclear waste which is something yeah everybody should read but here in the u.s just as an example uh, on the sheer volume of money um, we spend 10 times more on fossil fuel subsidies than on education wow so And it goes hand in hand because those subsidies aren't just funding energy exploitation, they're supporting an industry that creates plastics, which then harms oceans. And so everything is intersectional and cyclical. So, you know, plastics are created by as a byproduct of oil and gas development. So I think that 72% number is something that everybody should keep in mind, mm -hmm. you know, okay. and there's some resources on our website for how to call your government. So um, I can also share that specific link for you as well to include in the notes. That would be nice, yeah. Okay, well, thank you. Even though I would like to keep on talking to you about different projects that you do, it's time for me to read the outro that we're providing for um, the end of each episode. And this is the first time that I'll be doing that, so I actually will have to read it. Um, okay. If you would like to listen to our podcast on a regular basis, please consider subscribing. It is free and always will be, and you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. But the easiest way to subscribe is to use the podcast app on your phone, search for Climate Chats, and click subscribe. There, you will have access to additional links and resources, like the ones that Martha just talked about. And, of course, you can also listen to us by visiting the website of the Worldwide Online Climate Conference, Climate 2020. If you like our podcast, or if you disliked anything, we'd really appreciate your feedback. Uh, simply email us at contact at dl4sd.org or find us on Twitter. I'll also include that link in the show notes. Martha, thank you again so much for taking the time. Um, thank you. See you soon. Hope to talk to you soon again. And uh, see you, dear listeners, soon on the Climate Chats podcast. Take care. Bye.